Before this episode of The Lip Begins, a quick warning. It contains graphic and disturbing descriptions of violence. There's also the odd F word. Please be warned, it isn't suitable for everyone. I had two big um, washing baskets and both of them happened to be in the dining room. So he wanted both of us to kneel down in front of one each so that he could decapitate us and that our heads would go into the baskets to stop the mess. I could not tame the wild around me Some would call it dark and empty There are no On Wednesday, January the 22nd, 2003, just before 7.30pm, a country doctor was called to the scene of a domestic accident in the tiny Hauraki Plains town of Pipiroa. The doctor, Rob Hilligan, had been notified by the St John Ambulance Service, which was too far away to provide immediate assistance, that an accident had occurred at a converted workshop on the main street of the town. He was told a man had fallen off a three-storey roof and was bleeding profusely. What Dr Hilligan found when he arrived at the address, however, was a very different scenario from the one he expected. There was no man suffering from fall-related injuries, but there were two women, Simone Butler and Renee Gunby, lying in ever-increasing pools of their own blood. The women were barely alive. One of Renee's hands was completely severed and as well as lying in a pool of blood, she was surrounded by hair, her own hair. She'd been scalped and her throat had been slit. The other woman, Simone, was cradling both of her hands, or what was left of them, to her chest. One hand was attached to her wrist by just a thin strand of skin. Her other hand had been cleaved vertically right through to the palm. She had also been hacked across the head, shoulders, elbow, arms and neck. The women's wounds appeared to be defensive, inflicted as they'd raised their arms to shield themselves. The weapon they were attacked with would later be identified as a samurai sword. While Simone and Renee were helicoptered to hospital, where surgeons fought valiantly to reattach their hands, the man who had attacked them, Anthony Dixon, continued his rampage. He drove the 90 kilometres from Pipiroa to Hamilton, calling the emergency services on the way to tell them somebody had fallen off the roof. In Hamilton, he stole another car and headed north, driving like a maniac to Auckland. Somewhere along the way, he picked up a homemade submachine gun and from the car, he called the police and taunted them that this was going to be another Aramoana, a reference to the famous massacre of 13 people in Otago in 1990. He told the police he wasn't going to jail. He was going out in a blaze of glory, suicide by cop. When Dixon reached Auckland, he headed for a shopping centre car park. There, he pumped ten rounds of bullets into a random stranger, a father of three, who later died in hospital. When the police arrived at the car park, Dixon waited for them to return fire. When they didn't, he drove off towards the busy suburb of Howick, 
With the police following, he turned the gun on them and fired several shots, which all missed. The patrol unit pulled back, and in the early hours of the morning, Tony Dixon drove to a rural area in East Tamaki. He tried to force his way into one house, but failed. Next door, he had more luck, barging his way inside and holding a middle-aged man hostage. The following morning, around 6am, he finally put down his gun and surrendered. While all this was unfolding, Renee Gunby and Simone Butler knew nothing. They were both still in surgery. After 14 hours, the efforts to reattach Renee's hand failed. A huge team of surgeons, meanwhile, continued to work around the clock on Simone. At 27 and a half hours, it was at the time one of the longest operations ever performed in New Zealand's history. In the days and weeks following the attack, reports swirled about what went on in the property where Anthony Dixon rained down hell on his two housemates. It was one of the first high-profile crimes in the country involving methamphetamine. And yes, Tony Dixon was a meth addict, but this is much more than a story of addiction. For Simone, who had been Dixon's girlfriend for more than five years, it's a story about a woman caught in a trap who thought the only way out was death. In this episode of The Lip, Simone Butler tells her story from her ill-fated first meeting with Anthony Dixon through to how she finally healed the emotional scars, which went far deeper than the physical ones. I could not tame the wild around me. I could not tame the wild around me. When I first met him um I didn't think much of him at all he was um just someone that I knew someone that just seemed to always be there and I just thought he was a blowhard and a skite and just I just generally thought of him as annoying he stalked me for six months relentlessly and um, I moved to five different houses and he found me at every place that I moved to and he just wouldn't give up. He was so persistent and he was, I've just found out this new term called love bombing. And so that's what he was doing to me. He was just showering me with compliments and affection and time. I, I had very low self-esteem. I was 22 and I wasn't used to somebody being so into me. And so over time, he wore me down until I eventually agreed to um, have lunch with him and then um, and then he wore me down again where I eventually agreed to have dinner with him and he was so affectionate and so um, so charming and funny that all of the stories that I'd heard about him didn't really gel with the person that was in front of me. Um, I'd heard all sorts of stories about him being a loose unit and being uncontrollable and um, and being out there being this criminal in the world and stuff like that. And then by the time that he'd insinuated, he actually, he did, and he insinuated himself into my life. And then I started to, to like that attention. And I, even though I was fighting it, you know, mentally I was completely fighting it because I knew that he was bad news. But even then, like, I didn't, I didn't see that persistence as him um, stepping on my boundaries and not respecting me, I saw it 
as, oh, well, he must love me. You know, it, it must be meant to be. What Simone didn't realise in those early days was that Tony was keeping tabs on her. And by tabs, I mean he was basically stalking her. His friends, his acquaintances, whoever was in his sphere of influence, they were all instructed to watch out for her. But it wasn't like he'd actually said, oh, I'm out here stalking you and I've got all of my friends looking out for your car. It was like, oh, I drove past and saw your car in the driveway. Oh, I was driving down the road and I saw you turn into it. So I went to, to talk to you and then you pulled into this house. And, you know, and he always had very, very plausible reasons for how he'd come across me because it wasn't just at my homes. It was also, it was in gas stations. It was in supermarket car parks. Um, it was outside dairies, you know, like it was in all of these random, places and I didn't realize until maybe a year or two into the relationship that he'd stalked me for the first six months like it was other people would say oh yeah remember that time and oh, oh, oh I rang you I rang you Tony and told you that her car was here and I was like oh what and then the, you know and then one of his mates go oh yeah 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 he had us looking out for your car all through Penrose and all through the city and and I was like oh okay you know like I didn't I didn't know just how much time and effort he had put into tracking me down. All I knew was that it was these coincidences. And then when I did start spending time with him, he was very kind and he was very considerate and he was so generous. While Simone thought she was getting the measure of Anthony Dixon, the truth was she had no idea what she was getting into. He had a long list of criminal convictions and had shown himself to be manipulative and abusive in previous relationships. She sometimes likened his persistence to a romantic movie, the kind where the male lead does anything to get the girl of his dreams. She'd had a difficult childhood and Tony's love bombing was a heady experience, even when their first sexual encounter resulted in what she now realises was rape. It was in the early days of them knowing each other at a time when Simone had tried to break things off with him. He'd asked to meet me, and I'd been saying no and no and no and no and no, and then I was feeling quite down and vulnerable on that day that he phoned me and said, hey, you know, let's have dinner, let's catch up, just mates, really miss you, you know, we need to talk about this, and I love you so much, and I was like, whoa, no. And then after like an hour on the phone... I was like, okay, fine. And so I jumped in my car and I went to meet him in East Auckland and I didn't know East Auckland then. So I drove around very lost, um, of which he followed me driving around me very lost and finally phoned me after half an hour of watching me pull over and check maps and all this sort of stuff. He thought it was hilarious and said to me, jump in my car and we'll get some food. And I was like, no, 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 I'll just follow you. And he's like, no, 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 jump in my car. So I jumped in his car and I left my car on the side of the road and then that was it. He took off and took me to his house. I had, um, I didn't know where I was. Um, I didn't know how to get back to my car. I didn't, um, I didn't really know anything. And then we got to his house and he'd promised me dinner, but there was no dinner. There was just Johnny Walker. And the whole time I was like, I need to go back to my car. And he's like, just have another drink, just have another drink. So I had a few drinks and I got really sick and I was vomiting and stuff and I passed out. And then, um, I think he, 
picked me up off the couch and took me off to bed and I was like no no I've been sick I've been and I, I like in my mind like I wanted to sleep with him at some stage just not then and so I was just like no no I've been sick and I don't want to do this and you know gross 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 and he's like oh, I don't care and just pretty much shoved it in and then that was it and I didn't realize that was rape at the time because you know you're you're told as a girl that you know that you're not allowed to lead people on and that if you're drunk in a place with a man and he has his way that that's your fault and after that happened I swore that I was never going to see him again and I, I tried really hard I didn't make any contact with him and then again he somehow got back into the loop and wore me down again and I ended up going and talking with him. Slowly but surely, Simon fell into a relationship with Tony and the part of himself he showed to her in those first weeks and months, Simon now thinks of as Good Tony. Good Tony was fun, generous, playful, um, affectionate, and like, you know, listen to my dreams for hours, you know, we would lie in bed and I would talk about all of the things that I wanted and he'd be so supportive and he'd be like, oh, you're the best woman in the world and you're really going to do this and you're so amazing. And he'd be going on to all of his friends about how I had such a good job and how I was such an awesome person and how I had no criminal record and how it's the first time, you know, he'd ever been with someone that had a job and all of these things, you know, and he would build me up and build me up and build me up. Um, he was always really desperate for us to be this this super family unit loving couple thing but his ways of expressing love were very possessive you know I was his possession and I was his obsession and for me having no self-esteem I really bought into that because I'd never had someone so into me before I'd never come across the man that wanted so many cuddles and that wanted to hold me all the time and always wanted to hold my hand when we were out in public and stuff and, you know, it swept me away. And so, yeah, so Good Tony was actually really, really lovely and Good Tony is the problem <laughs> because once all of the other Tonys came along, I was desperately holding on for Good Tony to come back. When Good Tony wasn't around, he was replaced by one of the two other Tonys, Bad Tony or Psycho Tony? Bad Tony. So Bad Tony was a criminal. He was mischievous. He was entitled and thought that everything belonged to him and that he could get away with anything. He could steal anything off anybody, but if you stole off him, like woe betide, you know, he was going to come after you. Once, after going missing for days, possibly weeks, Bad Tony turned up at Simon's house with a huge grin on his face. He'd been down country, in Tauranga, and had been arrested by the police for eight counts of driving while disqualified. He'd broken out of the police lockup via the skylight and was officially on the run. But that didn't stop him sending them a postcard. Saying thanks for having me but you weren't that hospitable, had to leave. When they finally caught up with him at the St Luke's shopping centre car park in Auckland, he was sent to prison. It was after his release from prison that Psycho Tony began rearing his head. The first time that I was afraid of him was the first time that he hit me, which was in a supermarket car park in Mount Wellington. And he just found out that I had admitted to tell him that I'd slept with someone when we were broken up. And I had actually slept with my ex-boyfriend and I told him about that and he couldn't have cared less. Again, got me to hop into his car so that we could talk. 
and I did and he started yelling at me and I said okay you know we'll 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 break up I went to grab the door handle and he locked the door from his side and because there were people maybe 10 meters away and so I um I thought I'd make a run for it to all the people up near the supermarket and he told me then that I'd be dead before I hit the pavement and that there was nobody there that could save me and he started punching me in the head with a left jab continuously and so that was the first time that I was scared of him but it was also the first time that he started to make threats not only for my life but for those that I loved and even strangers and I was overwhelmed like I didn't know what to do that probably lasted 20 minutes worth of punching and things and then he took me off um, to meet someone else and um, and I was just pretty much slipping in and out of consciousness for the whole day after that and then um, in true Tony style he then took me home and kept me pretty much naked and a prisoner for like four days um, wrapped around me telling me how much he loved me and how he'd never do it again and how he was just so hurt and so scared when he thought that he was going to lose me and he was so sorry and I mean bawling his eyes out sorry you know wrapped around me hyperventilating uh, telling me that I was the only woman in the world for him and stuff and I'd made him do this because I'd lied and I was you know I, I loved him well, I thought I loved him at that stage, and so I thought, okay, well, I'll forgive him for this. And I understand now, if I had have done something about that then, it would have saved a lot of pain and anguish. But I also, you know, I wasn't raised that you go to the police, and I wasn't raised that you talk about, well, I was raised that you don't talk about what goes on behind closed doors. And, um, and I was embarrassed and humiliated, you know, I didn't want to tell anybody that this man that I loved had hit me, you know, that was, that was even more um, painful and shameful than everything else. And so from that moment on, I started trying to keep up appearances and see me walking on eggshells and he knew that he had me in his pocket. Psycho Tony showed up more and more. One night, he woke Simone in the small hours and told her he had to drop something off at a friend's house. He needed her to follow him in his panel van. He jumped into his car and took off, but Simone couldn't get the panel van to start. I spent like five minutes messing around and then thought, oh my goodness, he's gone, he's going to be so angry, so I jumped in my work car to go race out there and find him and he pulled back in the driveway just as I was starting my work car and started screaming and screaming and screaming and then um, he had a ratchet in his hand and he just slammed it straight through the window and it smashed me in my forehead and my whole forehead just split open and the head bleeds a lot and um, and then he was so caught up in all of his ranting and raving that he didn't even notice that I was bleeding for a few more minutes. Even then, Tony forced Simone to continue with his midnight mission before finally allowing her to go to accident and emergency and get treatment. It was just one of dozens of times she needed medical help during the relationship. She always had a story for the medical staff and her employers to explain away her broken bones, her bumps, her bruises, her black eyes. The violence would come and go, like it would be like three minutes of violence and then two weeks of like beautiful, amazing, generous, loving, affectionate Tony. And I think, wow, did that even happen? Like, am I crazy? And I just got all caught up in it. 
I was desperate to get away um, from the first beating, um, but I didn't know how to, and I was still too ashamed to tell anybody and to ask for help. He was very adamant about hurting my family. You know, he knew where one of my nanas lived. He knew where one of my cousins lived. He knew where my mother lived. Like one time when I did leave him, he turned up at my mother's for six hours and refused to leave until she finally tracked someone down that could find me. And, um, and he refused to leave until I spoke to him on the phone. So I was like, okay, well obviously I'm gonna to talk to him because I need him to leave my mother's house. Yeah, and again, it never occurred to me to call the police. And, and I can see, obviously, in hindsight, that they may well have helped. Um, but in my mind, if I ever called the police, that was signing my death warrant. Simone was coming to terms with the fact she was trapped. But she found it harder to come to terms with the abuse of their dogs, whose names were Cash and Hannah. It's something she can hardly bring herself to talk about, even now. She recounts one incident where Tony took to the dogs with scalding water. There were many times when we would be outside arguing on the driveway and the dogs would always take my side. They would go for him and that made him very angry. There was one time we were out on the driveway, I don't know what we were arguing about, and Cash went for him, went to bite him. And he went and got the jug and threw that on him and then he went and reboiled the jug, filled the jug, reboiled it, and then went back out and threw that on him as well. And I tried to get in the way, and I got it all up my legs as well. Um, but then he wouldn't let me go near the dogs. I then ended up getting punched after that because I was still trying to get to the dogs, or at least, um, you know, I wanted to take them to the vet or anything. At this stage, we lived out um, in the middle of nowhere, and he took my keys and, and my phone, and um, and when he finally left, I took the dogs down to the beach and bathed them in salt water, and that was all in my my leg as well. I didn't actually care about myself, and that was like all I felt that I could do. Back then, she didn't see the parallel between Tony's abuse of the dogs and his treatment of her. What she also didn't realise was the extent of Tony's addiction to meth a drug which in the late 90s and early 2000s, not that many people were aware of. The first time that he beat me up and the first time that tried to pee was all sort of about the same time. So I didn't know that the escalation in violence was possibly because of that, because I had no experience with pee. You know, nobody really had any experience with methamphetamine back then. And I wasn't necessarily seeing him smoke it all the time at this stage. And I knew that he'd been violent with his ex-wife. And I knew that he'd been violent with other people. And I knew that he had, you know, a long history of violence. So I didn't realise that the violence that I was getting was super excessive. I mean, I knew it was super excessive for me, but I didn't know that it was super excessive for him. I was certainly aware that he was taking pee, but when he'd first brought it home, he pressured me for about a month and I finally tried it and I didn't like it. I didn't like the way it made my body feel and then I saw it recrystallize in the glass and I went, oh my God, like that's got to be really bad for you. You know, imagine what it's doing into your lungs. It's never something that I ever wanted to do I only ever did it under duress because he'd be like oh don't make me smoke by myself come on just have one just have one please please and I'd be like fine and then I'd have it and I'd be like oh my god I wish I didn't do that I need this to end it was like it's just it was just not a feeling that I liked 
And so I'm just going off on my own little life. Um, you know, I was still allowed to work at that stage and I was um, out for nine, ten hours a day. And I think slowly but surely he just increased his use. In March 2002, Simone was at an evening work do at an upmarket restaurant when Tony turned up to check on her. It was, she says, the beginning of the end. I was a sales rep for a shipping company and we had a work function with all of our clients coming and he had decided for whatever reason that I needed to be spied on so he'd climbed up into the trees with um, night vision goggles and he couldn't actually see anything and so apparently after about half an hour or so he gave up and sent his friend in to get me and take me home. His friend said that he was my brother and they were like what no she doesn't have a brother and stuff and they're like she has to come now it's family emergency and all of this sort of stuff so I went to go and one of my colleagues came to say where are you going what are you doing no 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 you can't leave now and I knew that Tony was at the bottom of the stairs and would have been watching and so I was trying really really hard to not look spooked and to get this guy to go and you know and he was touching my shoulder and things like this and already I was starting to panic because I knew that I was being watched and that it would be taken in the wrong way and I finally managed to get um, my colleague to go back inside and then um, I hopped in the ute it was him and his mate and I was on the centre console and he just punched me all the way to Thames. Tony delivered hundreds of vicious jabs to Simone's head for the entire hour-long drive home. She was so dazed by the beating, she can't remember what happened in the days after. I went back to work like five or six days later and, um, and my phone was smashed to smithereens and I, they'd had no contact with me and I had two massive black eyes. She lost her job and wouldn't work again for a very long time. By the end of that year, her life was as close to hell as she could imagine. Her own power had been taken away in small increments until she was isolated. With Tony's obsessive paranoia, it was impossible to go out to work. They had moved into what looked from the outside to be a tin shed in the middle of nowhere. Inside, it was a DIY disaster and a strange mix of workshop and living quarters. I had no idea how to get away from him. I knew that no matter what, it was only ever going to end up in carnage. I actually thought he'd shoot me. Not that there were guns around, but he was gun obsessed. I sort of expected that I'd be shot in the head at some stage. Like I didn't want to, and it was, you know, but it was in the back of my mind. And again, I never thought I'd be attacked with a samurai sword, but that was in my house. It was an ornament, and I mean, and I did used to hide it, you know, just in case. He always found it. In October 2002, another woman moved into the shed. Her name was Renee Gunby. Simone remembered her as a girl she used to play with in childhood. She was also the sister of a friend of Tony's. It was Tony who insisted that Renee move in. Without a hint of irony, he said he was saving her from an abusive relationship with a motorcycle gang member who beat her. Simone never for a moment thought Renee was in danger of the kind of violence Tony meted out to her. By now, his meth use had skyrocketed. I didn't realise um, how much he was smoking, and then towards the end, like I would see him smoking, but I was so tuned out to everything that he was doing that I didn't actually notice. And I, what I did notice maybe a couple of months before he attacked me, was that he'd pretty much stopped smoking weed. And so that 
was like my first indicator that, oh my God, like something's really changed with him because he was a massive weed smoker. And it was one of those things that actually calmed him down. One of the only good things about this time was that Tony was often gone for weeks. Most of the time he was just gone for a week or two. I would still get phone calls and stuff and he'd be like, oh, I'm going to come home because I need this, this and this. And I'm like, no, 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 tell me what you need. And I'd pick up a car and I'd see him on the side of the road and we'd just swap cars or we'd, you know, I'd give him everything he needed out of the ute and off I'd go. And so that was quite pleasant for me because I could almost pretend that he didn't exist. She noticed when he was there that he was convinced the police were watching him. He called them up to 50 times a day, telling them to stop tracking him. On the main highway outside their property, he spray-painted a message in huge letters so it could be read by the spies in the planes, which he believed were constantly surveying him from above. He thought any car travelling behind him was trying to kill him. On Wednesday, January the 22nd, 2003, Tony sent Simon up to Auckland to pick up his friend Roger. He was travelling by ferry to come and help Tony fix some cars. Because he'd actually pulled out the dashes of all of our cars, he was searching for bugs, he was super paranoid. Like, by this stage I knew something was wrong. I didn't necessarily know it was because of P, but I knew that he was completely fucked in the head and that his paranoia had, like, reached wicked heights. The ferry was late and they also had to pick up some spare parts. All up, the round trip was supposed to take two hours, but ended up taking all day. By the time Simon and Roger arrived back at the shed in Pipiroa, it was early evening. We walked in and um, he seemed more agitated than usual and he locked the door behind us, which Roger thought was really strange, but I didn't because that door could only be shut by locking. Um, and then we walked through the carport and just the most airy feeling came over me. Like I was just, I, I felt really strange and I didn't know why. And then we went into the kitchen and he locked that door behind us as well. And I knew then that something was really, really wrong. I didn't know what. And then we were inside and I couldn't see Renee, I didn't know where she was. And he just started ranting and raving that first, that... I'd been working with the police against him and then she'd been working with the police against him and he couldn't keep his, his head straight and he just started going absolutely crazy and Renee came and sat opposite me at the coffee table and um, and I saw that she was bleeding and I was like, are you okay honey, what's wrong? Um, and still I had no idea that he'd been violent with her. And then he started getting in her face and like she was sitting on the opposite side of the table and he started like getting right in her face and yelling and screaming at her. So I jumped up and went and put myself between them. And then the next thing I know, he's trying to chop her head off with a sword. The ornamental samurai sword that had been in the house for ages, the one Simon kept hiding and Anthony Dixon kept finding, it was suddenly in his hands. He swung it wildly and demanded that the two women bow their heads in front of him. I had two big um, washing baskets and both of them happened to be in the dining room. So he wanted both of us to kneel down in front of one each so that he could decapitate us and that our heads would go into the baskets to stop the mess. Um, 
I declined. I was screaming my head off at him, telling him that he was crazy. And mainly like, where is this coming from? Like, I don't understand. Where is this coming from? I don't have any recollection of actually seeing the sword. I just saw flashes of light because it's silver and it was moving so fast. So it was just like flash, flash, flash. Like I didn't actually see the sword as such. But I knew, like, you know, it was connecting with me and I was hearing like steel smash through bone. My arms were up like this and the left one just fell off like right in front of my face and so I just happened to grab it. There was still a piece of skin between my hand and my arm but the actual hand just dropped and I remember thinking at the time like watching the squirts of blood just going pshung, pshung, and going oh wow it's just like the movies and then fuck someone focus focus you know like really bizarre things go through your head then. Her left hand was all but gone, and her right hand, it wasn't faring much better. It had been sliced through vertically, to the palm. And then off at the forearm, and then off at the elbow. So they were all dangling, and um, I'd like flipped it back up, flipped it back up, and just held them all together here, like at my chest. And by this stage I'm on the ground, and I couldn't, I was trying to stand up, but I couldn't, I just couldn't make my legs work. There was like no strength in my body and there was just like this thick black congealed tar um, blood pool like that was just around me and getting bigger and like and all you can smell is the blood. You know it was just I, it was like I was in a rusty boat or something it was just the smell was was just was wicked. Renee was lying in a pool of her own blood and she wasn't moving. She wasn't, and I'm still on the ground screaming at him, and in the back of my mind, and I'm like, play dead, play dead, he's ignoring her, she's not moving, play dead, he'll leave you alone if you just play dead, but I couldn't, I just couldn't stop screaming at him, going, what the fuck's your problem, you know, because it was a big problem, and <laughs> I didn't understand, and I really, you know, I, I, I just couldn't comprehend it. He knelt down next to me after it was all over and told me he'd seen me in hell and that he was going to kill himself. Um, but he didn't. Roger tried really hard to get him away from us and, and succeeded. When, when Roger first tried to come to our aid, he was like, I'll fucking chop your head off too, rah, rah, rah. And so then Roger had to go through his entire relationship with him and say, remember when you smacked me in the head with a hammer? I never went to the police. Remember when you did this to me? I never went to the police. You can trust me. Just come with me. Leave the girls alone. Come with me now. Come on. Let's go. Let's go. Let's go. Leave the girls. Leave the girls. And somehow um, he managed to coax him outside and get him away from us. Once I realised that I was going to die, I was actually really grateful that I was never ever going to have to deal with him again. I thought, okay, this is it. You know, not how I wanted to go out, but the bright, the one bright light was that I was never ever going to have to deal with him again. That that was gone. Um, and because I was never suicidal, but I certainly wished death on myself. I'd always sort of thought that death would be the only way out because he had made it so hard and he'd spent so long, you know, 
scaring me with threats about my family. Like he threatened to slit my grandparents' throat in the night and burn down their house. Now I knew it was a threat, but I also knew he was sadistic enough to do it. So um, once I realized, oh my God, okay, I'm actually gonna die, it was a relief. But then when there were other random things, like I was like, oh my God, I'm so glad I put the rubbish out because there would have been nobody to do it the next day, you know? <laughs> like All of these silly, silly things. Um, it was very, very strange, but before they came, when I was um, lying there and bleeding to death, there was a point, like it was excruciating and excruciating and excruciating, and there was a point, possibly, because I think I was passing out in and out, and so there was a point that all of a sudden it was just warm and it was euphoric and the pain was gone, and, and I actually felt free. And that was when I was like, okay, I can die now. You know, I'm actually free. I don't have a clear vision of, of people turning up. I knew that there were people there and I know that I said to someone, I think he's gone, but be careful. You never know. Like I, I was worried for their safety. And then I remember being wheeled through the door out to the helicopter. In that moment, all of my will to live came back and I was so happy, you know, like I was so happy that I was going to be saved. The guy was like, can you please give me your name and address? And I was like, sure, Simone Rachel Butler, 19 Buchanan Road, Piperara. He's like, oh my God, I can't believe you're still lucid. And then they drugged me up and took me to hospital. They spent 27 and a half hours reattaching my hands and I was so lucky that I wasn't smoking pee and that I didn't smoke cigarettes because they are the two reasons they could put me back together. The cigarettes is the big one and I'd, I'd given up cigarettes when I was like 22 or 23 I think because cigarettes destroy your blood vessels. I wasn't drinking and I was eating pretty healthily and the only thing that I had for myself mentally was running and so I did a lot of running and so my body was actually quite fit and strong at the time. When Simone woke from her coma a few days after the operation, she was swathed in bandages. The ones on her arms were so thick, her arms seemed strangely short, and she assumed her hands had gone for good. I had an aspirator in, and so that I couldn't talk anyway, and so it was another day or two before they took that out. So it was probably a few more days before I found out that my hands had been sewn back on. But just when I woke up anyway, it didn't bother me that my hands were gone, because I was here. I just felt overwhelming, overwhelming feelings of gratitude and love for everybody that had put me back together. And then also this real sense of duty to honour those that had worked so hard on me to um, do everything that I could to get myself um, as healthy and as um, working as possible. Simone's physical recovery took years. It was challenging and painful and slow. Her reattached hands will never work the way they used to, but she's just grateful to have them. The physical healing, I mean, it wasn't easy, it was super hard, but compared to the emotional and the psychological healing, it was like a piece of cake. The emotional, the psychological healing, you know, even though my self-worth jumped like a million when I woke up and I found out my hands had been sewn back on and like I'd survived, it still took a lot to be able to get me to a place where I wasn't full of shame, where I wasn't full of pain, where I wasn't full of bitterness and twistedness and hate, 
for myself and for others and so yeah so the emotional and psychological healing took a lot longer and took a lot more out of me. That recovery took many forms. One of her first healing experiences was with shamanism, which is an ancient practice of healing through the spiritual realm. A friend introduced Simone to a shaman who worked with her for hours, days, weeks, months, years. This is Simone explaining how it works. When we experience grief or loss or pain or trauma, uh, we will often lose a little part of our soul. It fragments off. And, um, and it can happen from, any, um, from anything that happens in your life that causes you pain or loss. You know, you'll, you'll hear somebody that's like, oh my goodness, I feel like I lost a part of myself when he died. Or, oh my goodness, I've never been the same since that happened. Or, oh my goodness, I really felt like she took some of me with her. So my shaman would come with me. It was like she was actually walking through my mind with me, or it felt like it to me. And we would go and gather up these parts. There would be rituals that we would have to do. It's called singing the soul home, or calling the soul home. I welcomed parts of myself home and made them understand that it was safe for them to be here now, that I was not the same person that I was when they left, that the situation was not the same as when they left, and that they could now come home safely and reintegrate to make us into the whole person that we needed to be. It's very hard to explain, but it did. It made me feel... Um, more whole it made me feel more centered more myself you know it was like um it was it was like there were parts of me that were missing and they were integral parts of who I am and who I needed to be she also found a way forward through writing although it was some time before her hands worked well enough to hold a pen as soon as I could do it properly, like I just, I just started writing just to make sense of all the chaos in my head. Like I was trying to bring order to things and, um, and I just wrote and I wrote and I wrote. Getting things out on paper was, was really healing and beneficial as well because then it wasn't stuck in my mind. Like once it was out, it was out and I could move on to the next thing. So for me, writing is, is really cathartic. Two years after the attack, Simone was drawn to reconnect with horses, animals she'd been passionate about as a kid. They were another vital piece in the jigsaw of putting her life back together. It just, it just opened me up, you know? It just, it gave me this new sense of healing that I didn't even know that I needed. I learnt about how horse management and human management are the same um, and all of the lessons that I was um, learning with my horses about you know things like start as you mean to go on don't let the little things slide you know be assertive um, you know put your boundaries in place and continue to reassert them every time um, and you know I thought wow they can actually be applied to men as well you know because we let people know how to treat us by the way that we let them treat us or by the way that we treat ourselves. And so for me, working with the horses was not only helping my mind and my emotions heal, it was teaching me how to be assertive back out in the world. 
Throughout all her years of recovery, Simone says forgiving herself for letting Anthony Dixon into her life at all was the most difficult by far. He completely destroyed me emotionally and psychologically. I would like I was still having arguments in my head with him, you know, two years after the attack. Forgiving myself for everything I'd ever done and everything I'd never done and for not keeping myself safe and for not removing myself from the situation. Emotionally, that was possibly the hardest thing to do. In the days after his brutal attack on Simone and Renee, Anthony Dixon underwent psychiatric assessment at Auckland's Mason Clinic. He was deemed to be fit to stand trial, and when he appeared in court, he pleaded not guilty on the grounds of insanity. At his subsequent court trial, apart from the truly shocking nature of the crime, his court appearances were remarkable for his unusual mushroom-like haircut and bizarre bug-like eye movements. Witnesses for the Crown believed this was all an act to convince the court he was indeed insane. The trial ended in a verdict of guilty for, among other charges, murder, wounding and kidnapping. He was sentenced to life with 20 years minimum. Later, his convictions were overturned on the basis that the judge had not properly instructed the jury on the law relating to insanity, and also that the jury should have been given the option of manslaughter as an alternative verdict to murder. His retrial, however, resulted in a second guilty verdict, guilty of murder. He returned to his prison cell and his new sentence was due to be handed out on February the 5th, 2009. For the whole time Dixon had been in prison, during the time Simone was trying to heal and move on with her life, she had been forced to visit him to sort out their complicated financial affairs. He had refused to sign anything without her seeing him eye to eye. It had literally taken years and she had hated every moment of contact with him. It wasn't until late 2008, not long after Dixon's second guilty verdict, that he signed the last document and she became free of the last bonds, the financial bonds, that had tied them together. Then, in the early hours of February the 5th, 2009, the day he was due to be sentenced for his second guilty verdict, staff at Auckland's top security Paremoremo prison checked on Dixon and found him lifeless in his cell. An inquest later found he had strangled himself with a piece of cloth torn from an anti-suicide blanket. Simon received the news within hours. I got the phone call at like four in the morning from his ex-wife and I hung up from her and um, I was just sliding around my kitchen doing pirouettes and like leaping for joy and stuff and I had to wait for hours before I could ring anybody because I found out at four in the morning. I was delighted when he died and I actually feel like part of the reason, I mean possibly he didn't want to do another 20 or 30 years in prison, but I actually feel like part of the reason... Um, was because he realised that I was completely gone. There was no more me. Like it was the nicest thing he ever did for me.
It's now more than 14 years since Simone's severed hands were miraculously reattached. I think the entire surgery was magic, you know, and the people that were doing it were magic. Her hands aren't perfect, but, you know, they're hands. And they work. I feel like they can do everything, but they actually can't. Um, <laughs> um, so at, I'm not very good at opening tins and cans and stuff. I'm not very good with zips um, and buttons, but I, you know, I do. It's just I'm patient and it takes time. Um, with my left hand, I can't really pick things up. So if I drop something on the ground, I'll try like four or five times to pick it up with my left hand and go, oh, that's right. And then I have to get my right to do it. These days, Simone lives in West Auckland, working as a spiritual counsellor and naturopath. She has little contact with Renee, and she steers clear of speaking on behalf of her old childhood friend. As she sees it, Renee has her own story to tell, and it's absolutely Renee's story to tell, no one else's. Simone recently published a book called Double-Edged Sword, which grew out of the many journals she kept after the attack. Sometime during her healing journey, she realised they were an important part of her recovery and that her story could do some good in the world. It could help others. At the book's launch late last year, she wore a sleeveless summer dress. Her long hair was piled elegantly on top of her head. It was proof she doesn't hide the 40-odd scars that crisscross her body, almost all of them inflicted by Anthony Dixon, including one on the back of her neck where he tried to behead her. It's a necessary story to tell because it was so easy to fall into, a, into an abusive relationship and really hard to get out. You know, I was strong, I was independent, I was intelligent. My whole life I'd been standing up to bullies that were bullying other people and it didn't matter if they were like three times bigger than me, I was still right in there, you know. But then when I was being bullied, I just, I, I don't know what was wrong with me, but once I was being bullied, I just didn't, you know, I didn't stand up for myself in a way, obviously, that was to my benefit. You know, I didn't stand up for myself and go to the police. I didn't stand up for myself and leave and stay gone. I want women that have been in abusive relationships to be able to see that you can heal from it. I want women that are still in abusive relationships to take this as a cautionary tale and to maybe give them the courage to get out while they can. But even more than that, I would love for this to be a preventative measure, you know? If one girl reads this book and then doesn't go out with that boy, you know, and they don't have to be girls, like, you know, abusive relationships are across every gender. But if, if one human makes the decision to take better care of themselves, then, you know, like, that's amazing. I know some of the content in this story might be a trigger for some listeners. On our website, thelippodcast.kiwi, I've prepared a list of domestic violence organisations contactable in the six countries where we're listened to the most. The website again is thelippodcast.kiwi. And you've been listening to The Lip. I'm Megan McChesney. Simone's book, called Double-Edged Sword, was written together with Andra Jenkin and it's a powerful piece of writing. I couldn't put it down. 
Information on where to buy the book and the link to Simon's website are all on our website, thelippodcast.kiwi. We release an extraordinary true tale every month and you can find all our previous episodes there. We're also on iTunes, Stitcher and the Current Affairs and Culture website, noted.co.nz. So if you haven't heard any episodes of The Lip before, do dive in and have a listen. And if you like what you hear, please feel free to go onto iTunes or Stitcher and subscribe, which means every time a new episode of The Lip is released, it will drop straight onto your device, just like that. You're ready to go. You can also show your support by leaving a review on iTunes and by following us on Facebook or Twitter. Thanks to all of you who've already done so. Believe me, every little bit of support is noticed and greatly appreciated. Anyway, that's all from me. I'll be back next month with another quite astonishing true story. Oh